0: that we might grow to be complete in Christ. Looking at a list of songs on a particular album yesterday, I noticed one of the songs was entitled Locked Out of Heaven. Now this was not a religious artist and the songs would not be considered spiritual I suppose in any way shape or form. Most of them, it seems, were love songs. I didn't listen to the songs since I was actually looking for something else at the time and just chanced upon this album of the songs later. As I thought about it though, I wondered what a secular song might say in a song with the title, Locked Out of Heaven. I can only imagine, but the question does conjure up some interesting considerations. One perspective would simply assume that the words were meant only to invoke a series of images likening the desired result to be the equivalent of being in heaven. In other words, even if the singer didn't believe in the reality of heaven, most people can equate to the attainment of heaven as the ultimate goal for one's life. To be in heaven is to reach one's highest potential, to experience exquisite happiness and satisfaction, to have attained the best that life has to offer. You get the picture. So following the song's name, I suppose that to be locked out of heaven is the epitome of disappointment, of not being able to have that which one desires most out of life, to being rejected or jilted by the one that the singer loves most, a real disaster. But all of this is speculation. You and I know that heaven is a real place and a real destiny for those who know and love the Lord it's not imagery or poetic simile or nor is it a metaphor i guess some would like to believe that because to do so would mean that there if there is a heaven then of course there must also be a hell think about that for a moment If heaven is a real place, then it is possible to be locked out, as in the words of that song I noticed. Of course it is. In a manner of speaking, it is quite correct to say that one can be locked out of heaven, not in the sense of having been there left and now wanting to return, only to discover one has left the key as locked out, but in a sense of not being allowed in, of realizing and having to accept that heaven is a place that has been reserved for those who are destined to enter. I guess this is why the stories about St. Peter standing sentry to the so-called pearly gates came into being so long ago. One had to check in with St. Peter to gain entry into this most exclusive and glorious place, a place where God is. Many jokes have been written about trying to make it into heaven, which is really unfortunate because we are addressing a very real critical situation. Your invitation and authority to enter heaven one day is nothing to be light about. There was a price paid for each person who will enter heaven. Jesus died to make it possible. The robes that we wear are white as snow because they have been washed clean by the shed blood at Calvary. No eligible blood-brought believer will be locked out of heaven. Only those who have not bowed the knee to accept Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, these will not be able to enter heaven at all some will try claiming to have done things in jesus name but he will tell them to depart for he never knew them they will effectively be locked out of heaven consider the analogy i've been sharing with you this morning and make sure that you will not find that you have been locked out of heaven and now with this message for today here's our pastor
1: alan lee good morning I want to continue today with the subject, the absurdity of the cross that we started last time. I want you to continue to think with me about this very important subject. Now, last time, answering the subject of our last message, who killed Jesus, we concluded from Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, that in the final analysis, it was the Father who killed him, in the sense that it was he who by divine design offered him up as a sacrifice. When we come to the sacrifice of Christ, it is almost as though God the Father took the knife from Abram's hand that he was about to thrust into the heart of his only son Isaac, but God the Father took that same knife and allowed it to pierce the heart of his only son on Golgotha's hill. But now, here's another startling fact about all of this. The reason why so many people do not believe that the preaching of the cross is a message that is worthy of the consideration, much less acceptance, is that they cannot believe it until and unless their spiritual blindness is removed. They cannot be convinced by any of us about this message. It's only God the Spirit removing their spiritual blindness. Until that is done, all thinking is limited to the temporal and to what finite man can logically contemplate. And so, the unbeliever would reject or oppose anything that they cannot naturally comprehend. Why? Because to them, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It's absurd. Now, here is what the Word of God says in that regard. 1 Corinthians 2.14 the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually understood or spiritually discerned. Paul says the same thing in Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age, that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot See the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These are powerful words. Listen again to the apostle in ephesians four eighteen speaking of the unsaved, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. One more passage, First Corinthians chapter one, verse seventeen. For Christ did not send me to baptize, says the Apostle Paul, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then down in verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. End of quote. So God is saying, eternal life for sinful man made in my image is received by placing faith in my Son who, and because of the fact that he died on a cross by crucifixion. That, my friends, by all human standards, is utter nonsense. It is sheer absurdity. And so I repeat, the message of the cross cannot be understood or accepted unaided by divine enlightenment. This parallels the concept God states as an axiom or dictum, if you want, In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, listen to this statement again. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made man. Now, it is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who says this. The Jesus Christ who said in the New Testament that he and his Father are one. The Jesus Christ who said in the New Testament also that he came into the world to do his Father's will. It is also the Jesus Christ who said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Is there any logical, justifiable, biblical reason why we should even entertain the thought that Jesus would have a different opinion on what is it that upholds the dignity of and worth of man made in the image of God, would he differ from Yahweh in the Old Testament? Of course not. Yet, this is exactly what many people are saying today. God the Father and God the Son, they say, disagree when it comes to what it is that is the final and highest means of upholding the worth and dignity of man. God the Father says, if one human being takes the life of another human being without God's approval, then in order to uphold and maintain man's dignity made in the image of God, the life of the murderer must be forfeited. But some are saying Jesus doesn't agree with that. He has a much higher standard of dealing with man than his Father did. He deals on the basis of the love, but God the Father seems to deal only on the basis of justice. They are saying that if the state to whom God gave the responsibility to carry out this task did in fact do it, then they themselves would be guilty of state murder. Now, they say, it's okay to keep the murderer locked away against his will for life, but yet they don't call that state kidnapping. They call it humane punishment. Isn't it amazing how otherwise intelligent people could show such a lack of logical inconsistency when it comes to this matter on which God has spoken so clearly? Take the matter of deterrence once more. What do they do? They count all of the murderers who killed after one has been executed and say, See, look how many murders happened even though capital punishment was carried out. These figures prove, they say, that capital punishment doesn't deter others from committing murder. But that's not true at all. Such figures only show how many murders were not deterred, not how many were. To find that out, one would have to ask every would-be killer why they didn't kill. And of course, that's impossible to do. By extension, this form of human reasoning would probably conclude that if it were Jesus who had planned his death for mankind, it would not have taken place on a cross especially since it was the Romans' form of capital punishment. In fact, they would have to reason, he was so loving, so kind, and so compassionate, he probably would have simply forgiven man without demanding any kind of penalty, especially the death of an innocent man on a cross. He would simply turn his cheek and forgive man for his rebellion against God. That's the kind of dilemma we get into then, when we either refuse to accept what God says because it counters our own human reasoning, or we just simply are still spiritually blinded to the divine truth by the devil. that's exactly what one is confronted with when he or she is confronted with the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen again to first Corinthians one verse seventeen For Christ did not send me to baptize, says the apostle Paul, but to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Notice that there's power in the message of the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, the implication is through the cross, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The implication is we preach it anyway. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The implication here is that it, and both the wisdom and the power of God are demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this passage clearly tells us that it is only those who are being saved, those whom God has called, who regards the message of the cross as a product of the wisdom and power of God. Everyone else regards the same message as utter nonsense because it goes against human wisdom and reasoning. However, my friends, man's reasoning and lack of comprehension does not in any way diminish the validity or binding authority of divine truth. And no matter how man may say the cross is a barbaric inhumane method of death or that christianity is a slaughterhouse religion because it is based on the death of the son of god on that cross it still remains true that the preaching of the cross is the power of god and the salvation to anyone who believes it and as a result they rely upon the death as the basis for their salvation and that's new testament truth my friends supported by both Old Testament precept and practice. And so, I speak now to those of you who have not, to this point, trusted or relied upon Jesus Christ and his death on the bloody cross for you, for your salvation. And I ask you, why haven't you done so? Is it because you are too proud or too sophisticated to place your faith in the bloody gospel and a Savior who died by being publicly executed as a common criminal? Are you too proud to accept that? Or is it because you cannot understand the true significance of his crucifixion? If this has been so to this point in your life, but right now, as a result of the message and the word of God you heard, right now you truly are beginning to understand that Jesus died on the cross for you not just for the world, but for you personally and individually. If you begin to realize that right now, and that you must rely upon him for your salvation, then this is clear indication that God, the Holy Spirit, is right now removing the spiritual blindness that has prevented you from accepting him before. But my friends, you must still give your consent to the working of the Spirit of God. You must give your consent to His calling in your life. You must trust Him alone as your Savior. To use the phrase you've heard before, faith alone in Christ alone, that's how you become a child of God. I invite you then, if you have made such a decision, to please write and let us rejoice with you. Greg will give you the address in just a few moments. But if the Spirit of God has been working in your life and the blindness that Satan has had on your mind has been removed and you recognize right now that Jesus died for you and that all you have to do is to rely upon him as the basis for your salvation, I invite you to write us and let us know that you have received him as your personal Savior. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Selah, think and act on these things.
2: Great command is promised, he will surely come again. Happening a